welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. I want to tell you about an elderly gentleman, uh, age 89. His name is Joseph Herr, and he owns a home in Washington, Pennsylvania. And uh, he had the gas company turn off all of the power to his home several years ago, and uh, one of the horrors, of course, of an elderly individual is that if you should happen to fall in your home and break a limb, uh, not have readily access to communication, why you hazard losing your life in your own home like that, not able to call for help. And indeed, something like that happened to Joseph. He died in his home uh, during the wintertime, freezing, actually, to death. And it you might be prompted to ask, well, is this another heart-wrenching example of a suffering that is endured in silence by the poverty-stricken elder, elderly? But the answer to that is hardly, because nearby Joseph's body, in an unlocked safe and a box, the coroner found $188,000. And then when they checked his bank book account, he had $400,000 in the bank. So you have to ask your question, the question, he had plenty of money that he could have the gas turned on and the electricity, he could have had heat in the house, and he, here he is, 89 years of age, and there's no possible way he could have spent the inheritance of his children. Uh, he must have just been a Scrooge. He had a fascination with money and the hoarding of money. And so, evidently, Joseph's problem was greed, wasn't it? You could never have enough money. We all remember Dickens' A Christmas Carol, where the uh, featured character in it is Scrooge, how he learned to conquer his compulsive love of money by the hair-raising intervention of a nightmare spirit, Marley's ghost, and it just scared the Dickens out of him, as they say. In a similar story, more contemporary, a United States citizen involved in Hong Kong smuggling of a high-tech components to the People's Republic of China, he had a similar nightmare. He saw nuclear missiles launch from China, headed for the United States, and as it was about to detonate, he saw his name written on it. And Scrooge-like, he woke up in horror from his nightmare, and he resolved to come clean about his smuggling because of his dreams and fear of them. Well, I just wonder if there isn't a better way of learning how to handle money than suffering agonizing nightmares about what will happen to us after we have misused money unselfishly. It is true, as Jesus said, that God's final judgment will probe deeply into how we have used money. Everybody who loves money and who doesn't and who hasn't been tempted by that because of our very nature, realizes 
that there is a potential Scrooge-like spirit lurking within every one of our souls. Wouldn't you agree? But I don't think that fear of ultimate retribution is going to solve the problem of greed that is natural to the human heart. I mean, we could read A Christmas Carol by Dickens and be entertained by it, but does anyone think that that Christmas Carol can convert us from our greediness? The good news, however, of the gospel alone in Jesus Christ can convert us of greediness. And let's explore that thought together this morning as we pray. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that you will help us to understand the nature and the use of money and light of the good news that Jesus loves us, though we are sinners, and desires to deliver us from the greed of money. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, the good news is this, folks, that Jesus doesn't condemn us for being born with a natural love for money. Aren't you so thankful for that? He doesn't condemn us for that. It is as much a part of human nature to love money as the desire is for the want of life. And Jesus knew the temptation just as much as we do. I think Jesus knew the temptation to money even more than we do. Do you recall how the devil offered him all of the kingdoms of the world? Now, that was far more than any lottery could offer, correct? Jesus was tempted to bow down before Satan in order to acquire all of the kingdoms of the world, bidding higher for his talents than for ours, because Jesus certainly had so much more to bargain for. And we read that Satan took him up on a high, exceeding high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. In other words, Jesus Join the crowd in their greed. Join the crowd in their greed. So in wrestling with this real temptation, the Son of God learned by firsthand experience how subtle and deep is this human yearning for money, for power, for things. Certainly Paul was correct when he wrote, that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus' solution to our selfishness is not to create a handful of Mother Teresas in order to shame everybody else, but to share with all of us the good news that we can enjoy a dynamic and practical victory over the love for money. How? Well, the answer is simple, and yet it is permanently effective. And it brings to an end our nightmares about facing a future judgment in which we will be held accountable as as to our use of money. Now, the secret is a fundamental truth that underlies all of human existence. No human being anywhere can claim any rightful title to even one dollar as being his or hers. Now that principle is taught in a very well-known verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Obviously, that means that the world was doomed to perish unless God gave his gift. Now, it is a blunt, straightforward recognition that the world, everyone, not just believers, owes everything to God's divine gift, that is, Jesus Christ. No one can believe the gospel without recognizing immediately that he is going to now relate to everything, including money, in a totally different and new way in light of that gift of Jesus Christ. There is another text that I invite you to open your Bibles and look at in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15. It states the same principle even more clearly. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Beautiful verse. I'll read it to you from the New King James Version. It says, The love of Christ constrains us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And the original language implies that a new compulsion now grips the heart. It is stronger than our old compulsion of selfishness and greediness. Now, it is this powerful truth that lays the axe to the root of our love affair with money. If we believe that Christ died for all, that is the same as saying that we died along with him, and that if he had not died for all, we would all be dead and would therefore have nothing. That's a natural conclusion, isn't it? Everything else that you possess is only lent to you by the grace of the one who died for all. This means that you are a steward or that you are his employee. Uh, Better yet, we are in fellowship with God and we are more than a steward or employee, but we can talk about it in in terms of stewardship It makes no difference whether you believe this truth that Christ died for all or you do believe it. The fact remains the same. Christ died for all. And everything that is given over to us is lent to us. It doesn't belong one dollar to us. It belongs to him because he died for us. We wouldn't be here to enjoy the property unless he had done that to begin with. We are all, even atheists, eternally and infinitely in debt to that one Jesus Christ. Not only did Christ's sacrifice purchase for us the the prospect of life after death, even Christ purchased for us the prospect of having the good things of this life, as well as the life which is to come. And Ellen White says this in the book Desire of Ages on page 660. To the death of Christ we owe even this earthly life. The bread we eat is the purchase of his broken body. The water we drink is bought by his spilled blood. Never one, saint or sinner, eats his daily food 
but he is nourished by the body and the blood of Christ. The cross of Calvary is stamped upon every loaf of bread. It is reflected in every water spring. Aren't you so thankful that it's by virtue of Jesus' death for you on the cross that you enjoy all of the good things manifested in this life with the prospect of the good life to come with Jesus. You can see this point there. This point actually releases us from the tyranny, the compulsive tyranny of coveting, of greediness. It becomes easier to say no to things that you don't need and which would only give you a sense of guilt for possessing them. It becomes easier to say yes to giving, and you actually begin to see light in that famous word from Acts, which said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Relieving someone else's need, it begins to be fun, doesn't it? To help someone else who is in need. Once you realize that you aren't actually giving anything, you are just passing on what has been lent to you. During those occasional moments when you are in your right mind, you realize that you can't take anything with you when you leave this earth. No one holds title to anything beyond his precarious next breath. To save us from any painful, any painful part of Scroogeism, God has instituted a plan of managing money that perpetually reminds us that we do not own our assets. In the early days of our world, even before there were any Jews, God instituted the tithing system, returning one-tenth of all that we get to Him. A.B. read to us from Genesis chapter 28, where it says that Jacob made a vow, saying, If God be with me, and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, Of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. The idea is not that God is poor and he needs a handout, a dole from us. The idea is not that it is some kind of compulsory taxation system to return a tenth and offerings of our income to God. It is an acknowledgment that if one died for all, then all died. It's an acknowledgement that we are handling someone else's property. That someone else is Jesus Christ. The tenth that we return to him, the offerings that we return to him, says that we see ourselves as thankful stewards of the life that he's given to us. Tithe is a tangible hallelujah, a lifeline that helps connect our alienated souls to reality, a reminder of our tenuous grasp on life and on all that we have. You know, I think about a couple of brothers that were beloved members of our church, and Lanny Parsons was self-proclaimed pillar of this church, wasn't he? (laughs) And uh, I remember Lanny with fond thoughts, uh, a man of faith. He loved the truth of righteousness by faith. I love visiting 
with Lanny and talking and praying with him personally. And you could tell that he had this principle of the cross in his heart. He desired to be crucified with Christ. And that love was expressed in many, many ways. The le- the, certainly not the least of which was that he dedicated in death all of his property and he bequeathed it to the cause of the Lord because he was just turning back to the Lord what the Lord had already given to him. And we can be thankful as that uh, you know, that is the Lord's money in order to propagate the mission of the gospel in our community. We can be thankful for such souls as that, as Lanny. I miss Lanny very much. And then I think of Gordon Pearl, the little man, you know, who used to greet me when I would come in to the church lobby. Do you remember Gordon Pearl? And uh, he always had a smile on his face, you know, and he could see very dimly, but his heart could see great things. And uh, always enjoyed conversing with Gordon. He, too, saw the wisdom of making a proper disposition of the Lord's property so that on the occasion of his death, it went into the furtherance of God's gospel work here in Hayward. Aren't you thankful for folks like that? I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but uh, we belong to a part of a wider church fellowship that sees the need of handling God's property in a wise use and maybe you were not aware that right here in Pleasant Hill, where the center of our fellowship of churches here in Northern California Conference, we have uh, our, our pastors there who give us wise counsel, and they provided a service that is free so that they will actually write a will without any charge to you. And they will listen to you and your counsel exactly how you wish to make disposition of your property and they'll make it all legal. And you don't necessarily have to leave anything to the church if you don't want to. Is that correct? It's all up to you. And Norman does these kinds of things too in his practice. But I just want to let you know of that thing. And this is a tremendous blessing to the gospel work as people make wise use of the property that God has given to them. You know, when you think about it, uh, you just have to marvel at this principle that whenever Jesus worked a miracle to give people food or drink, that he always needed the willing cooperation of some human being. You remember at the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee, he needed the help of the servants who were back there behind the scenes, you know, to go get the wine jars and to fill them with water, and then he chose not to wave his hand and suddenly fill all of the guest glasses with supernatural wine, instead working behind the scenes with the servants. He gave the wedding party the wine. God needed the help of others. In the two miracles of the feeding of the thousands, you recall, it's interesting that in each instance he waited for the cooperation of the disciples before he could feed the multitudes. And in the case of the 4,000, when he expressed his compassion on the people being so hungry that they might collapse on their journeys home, he first asked the disciples 
how many loaves do you have? And apparently, they scurried off to inquire and take an inventory, and then they came back and they said, we have seven loaves and a few little fish. Well, very well. Now, Jesus can do something with that. He took the seven loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks, and he broke them, and then he gave them to the disciples because he needs the disciples to be the servers in his restaurant. He needs them to be his waiters. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. And then in the feeding of the 5,000, again, Jesus was dependent upon a little boy's lunch that his mother had given him. He was dependent on that little boy's gift of the five barley loaves and the two fishes. Obviously, the mother had made this lunch for him, and, uh, but the little boy was so enthralled at listening to Jesus that he forgot to eat his lunch. And so Jesus made something of it. The lesson seems very clear. Although Jesus could create bread from nothing, just like he created everything from nothing in the beginning, now... When Jesus is ministering on this earth, the rules of the great controversy require that Jesus be dependent upon the willing human cooperation of others in order for something to begin with. So the astounding truth of it is this. The Savior needs you, dear heart. The Savior needs you today. This is the lesson of it all. So you need to perk up and lift up your drooping head because you are very important in the great plan of finishing the great controversy between Christ and Satan. And he cannot do it without you helping him. cannot do it without your cooperation. The principle of giving, then, is the opposite of getting. Everybody is born with the spirit of getting. I don't think I ever have seen a baby who ever cried thinking about some other baby being hungry. Have you? The baby always cries because I'm hungry. Feed me. Never thinks of somebody else who might be hungry. And so the cheerful giver whom God loves is not That way, always thinking about self. The the cheerful giver, however, is is not born by nature as a giver. We are born as takers. See? So to be a cheerful giver requires the gospel change in our hearts and in our lives. Nobody has any natural born righteousness, but the cheerful giver is a selfish person, we all are by nature, who has been renewed by a heart appreciation of the unspeakable gift of God's grace in Christ. And his cheerful giving is the fruit of a faith that works by God's love. That's a cheerful giver. And although God so loved the whole world that he gave his son for it, those who appreciate the gift and who are stockholders in his grand enterprise of telling the world the good news, 
All who believe are members of his family, and they have a vested interest in the plan of salvation. The tithes and the offerings that are acceptable to God are those that are given as freely as he gave his offering in our behalf. God has directed that they will be used in his worldwide program of proclaiming the good news. And so, therefore, the prophet Malachi says, will a man rob God? Yet he asked those priestly leaders, he said, yet you have robbed me, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? And the reply is, in tithes and offerings. Then the invitation is to bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. And the storehouse, or God's household, symbolizes his temple or his organization, and that is the church. We don't pay tithes to God. He doesn't tax us. Tithes are not taxes. Nor do we give tithes to God. We return them to him. And there's a difference because they are his. They are his. He doesn't keep a cent for himself. He doesn't keep one cent for himself, but he uses all of it in support of his world network of agencies proclaiming the pure gospel through his church to the whole earth. That's how he uses it. Well, the question might arise, does God intend for even poor people to return to him a tenth? Does God intend for even poor people to give offerings from their meager income? And the answer is that everyone is invited to share in the blessings of being shareholders in God's enterprise. Everyone. Never in the history of the world has anyone suffered because of returning the tithe to the Lord. Never. He has made himself personally responsible to fulfill his ironclad promise, prove me now in this, that is tithe paying, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, this is Malachi 3, verses 10 and 11. Prove me now in this, that is tithe paying, says the Lord, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. Now, my father is 91 years of age, and he's just about spent all of my inheritance at that age. There's not going to be one red cent left to me when he gets done with life. In fact, he intends to live until Jesus comes. He recently told me he had $50,000 left, plus the house, plus a car. <laughs> and he's still going strong. <laughs> no health problems. And he has been a tithe payer, and he's returned offerings all of his life. I would say that the Lord has rebuked the devourer for my father and blessed him abundantly. Recently, he got the flu shot. And uh, sometimes that'll give you some symptoms afterwards, you know, like a little sore arm, sometimes even a little sniffle in the nose, you know, for a day or two. And he got that, a little sniffle in the nose. And I was concerned because at his age, if that should get into his lungs, you know, that could be a problem. 
So I kept in constant communication with him to make sure that wasn't getting into his lungs. And sure enough, it just turned out to be a symptom of that flu shot, and the symptom went away. And I said, praise the Lord. The, rebu the devourer has been rebuked. You know something? The angel of the Lord is protecting and guiding my father. God does that with each and every soul in this room. And I would like to think that, uh, you know, the message in the clouds that is over us in the fog today is that God is manifesting himself in the clouds and he has enveloped you with a protection, you know. And he invites you to be a manager of his goods, you see. And he's going to rebuke the devourer and he will take care of you and bless you abundantly. Now, the tyranny of... Uh, getting things. Sometimes we call it materialism. This is a very cruel bondage, a constant oppression of spirit. It's the pressure of, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, the neighbors, or even the relatives, uh, excessive concern for clothes, for houses, for furniture, for cars, for vacations, anything to bolster our sagging self-esteem. Self in loving concern for our happiness, the Lord pleads with us. He says, watch out, Luke 12, 15. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Could Jesus have been speaking especially to us today, do you think? Yes. Most surely, never in world history has any people had, had more good things laid up than we have today. And Jesus' point is that these material baubles are neither true wealth nor permanent. In fact, uh, in verse 30, you know, he says it's the pagan world that runs after all of these things. It's the pagan world. But God has already given us wealth that is infinitely better. In verses 32 Luke, of Luke 12, he says, Your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's his promise to us. So there is a better word than stewardship in describing our relationship to Jesus in his work of proclaiming the gospel to every creature. That command of Jesus, uh, where he says, Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. Well, we are to support those who go. We are to support those who go. And that means, first of all, the giving of tithes and offerings, one-tenth of our increase that the Lord gives us, and it's not a legalistic assessment from us. It's fellowship with Jesus in his work. It's what it is. It's working together with the Lord Jesus in his work of proclaiming the gospel to every creature in all of the world. You know, that is the work that Jesus loves to do, proclaiming the gospel to lost souls. And fellowship with him means enjoying the work that he loves to do. A steward is someone who cares for property. The word stewardship can be understood to imply a legalistic connection with the Lord Jesus in his work of proclaiming the gospel to every creature, but it's almost infinitely beyond that. You never get to really know someone until 
you get down working with him and digging the ditch. Stewardship, rightly understood, is getting down in the ditch and digging it with the Lord Jesus and sharing his heart burden for souls that are lost and sharing with them. Jesus said, go ye therefore. And that requires that we support those who give their lives to go. And your going may not be to some far-off land, to some romantic place that you read about in a textbook overseas, but it may mean that you go next door. Or it may mean teaching the everlasting gospel instead, teaching the everlasting gospel instead of legalism to our children in the school or in Sabbath school. God has commissioned you to go there and to reach the young minds. You know, if our hearts are enlarged to comprehend the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of the love, agape of Christ, in the true gospel, the Holy Spirit will take over our ministry and our teaching and everything that we do for the Lord Jesus is going to bear eternal fruit. And that is going to be happy stewardship. Happy stewardship both for now and for eternity. In the latter part of the 17th century, there was a German preacher by the name of uh, August Frank, and he founded an orphanage to care for the homeless children of Halle. And one day when Frank desperately needed funds to carry on his work, a, des- a destitute Christian widow came to his door begging for a ducat or a gold coin. And because of uh, his financial situation, he politely but regretfully told her that he couldn't give her a gold coin. Well, the poor woman was disheartened and began to weep. And Frank was moved by her tears. And so he asked her, will you please wait for a moment while I go to pray about this? And after seeking God's guidance, he felt that the Holy Spirit wanted him to change his mind. And so trusting the Lord to meet his own needs, he gave her the money. Two mornings later, he received a letter of thanks from the widow, and she explained that because of his generosity, she had asked the Lord to shower the orphanage with gifts. Well, the same day, Frank received 12 ducats from a wealthy lady and two more ducats, gold coins, from a friend in Sweden. Well, he thought, I have certainly been amply rewarded for helping the widow, But he was soon informed that the orphanage was to receive 500 gold pieces from the estate of Prince von Württemberg. And when he heard this, Frank wept in gratitude in sacrificially providing for this needy widow he had been enriched and not impoverished. You know, God is working in a marvelous way in the Hayward Seventh-day Adventist Church. Every day, needs are being met in our community. Community services here every Sunday morning sees a flood of individuals who are needing food and basic necessities. And many of you are involved in that. The bread run is fun, isn't it? Those of you that drive that rickety old white van of buds, isn't that fun to go get things from Safeway and bring it here and then have the privilege of handing out those goods to people who come to our door? I think of the Thanksgiving meal that so many are going to lovingly prepare on Thanksgiving morning for some of the needy people in our immediate neighborhood here. 
I think of the ambassadors who are knocking on doors in San Leandro where there is no Seventh-day Adventist church light and seeking to raise up a little company there. They're bringing Bible studies and good news to folks who are willing to hear. I think of the Bayside School, which is an evangelistic ministry for our community. You know, the wider number of our students and parents that come to Bayside are not of our own church, but of our wider community. And I'm thankful for that evangelistic work that they are helping to lead young souls to Jesus Christ. I think of the annual evangelism programs that we have and going out into our community and sharing with them the three angels' messages. And uh, I was just thinking the other day uh, of our evangelism committee. You know, it wasn't but a couple of years ago where we had John Bradshaw have a meeting and we started out uh, over here in the Crown Plaza for the first couple of weeks. And now I, I look uh, about us and I see how much our congregation has changed as a result of these evangelism meetings. And what is so remarkable is that uh, the up-and-coming leadership in our church now has come from those meetings. You think about that. The Lord adds to his church daily such as should be saved, doesn't he? And to the leadership of our church. I think about Vacation Bible School that's held annually. There's an impulse in this church to, to provide a spiritual education for children every summer in this church. I think about the multicultural ministries that happen in the Hayward Seventh-day Adventist Church. Did you know, not only is this a multicultural gathering here in our worship service, praise God for that. It's English-speaking. But we also have ethnic language churches that are meeting here, Korean as well as uh, Chinese, and we have a deaf ministry that's going on, and I just thank the Lord for that. I think about Sabbath school evangelism, those who are bringing the everlasting gospel to our, the minds of our young children, and not the legalism, but the healthy good news that will help them develop into positive experiences with Jesus. And I think of all of the mission trips to the Pacific Islands that have originated here from Hayward, as well as to the continent of Asia and other places. You know, the Lord has put it within the hearts of our people to share the agape love of God around the world. They have a vision worldwide as well as locally. You know, that giving Returning to God what belongs to him helps to foster these kinds of ministries. And it's good to be reminded what the Lord is doing. Praise his name. Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.